Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up. And your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. You're listening to KCBS In-Depth. We need, and we haven't done this yet, to centralize our public health system. The people, places, and issues the Bay Area is talking about. We have done exactly what needed to be done, which is provide and give an effective vaccine. The key for gun safety reform advocates is to think about this in the long term. These times when change happen, often brief, so you want to get as much accomplished as possible. This is KCBS In-Depth. Just how do we feel what we're feeling? You know, what's going on when I touch that hot stove that lets me know I'd better pull that hand away? It's a question that remained among the most mysterious in the science of human perception, but today's guest just won a Nobel Prize for his work finding some answers. Welcome to KCBS In-Depth. I'm Keith Benconi, and we are talking about that Nobel Prize. Today's guest is David Julius, a professor of physiology at UC San Francisco, who got the news earlier this past week that his work, examining the molecular basis of heat and touch, has earned this year's Nobel Prize in Physiology or Medicine. The key discoveries he helped make more than two decades ago set off a flurry of further research in the hopes of finding better treatments for pain. But it turns out the story of touch is quite a complicated one. David Julius joins us now to tell us a bit more about it. Uh, First of all, congratulations on the prize and uh, welcome to the program. Thanks so much, Keith. Pleasure to be here. So we are getting this conversation with you uh, pretty late in the week. I imagine you've done quite a few of these interviews by now, but uh, the excitement of winning a Nobel Prize uh, still going strong? Uh, It is, and it's in fact still sinking in. Yeah, well, I imagine it would take a while to process. Um, uh, To drill down just a little bit more, uh, your research helped shed light on uh, tiny receptors that send out a signal when exposed to uh, heat or other burning sensations. Uh, You can help me uh, say that a little bit more correctly later in the program because it it does seem like there's a lot going on there. But uh, you are actually also sharing this award with Scripps researcher Artem Patapudian, whose own work uncovered different receptors that respond to pressure. So uh, a lot going on there, and we are going to unpack it a little bit later on in the program. Uh, Let's actually start, though, with a much broader question. Uh, We mentioned earlier in the program that the sense of touch was uh, one of the last uh, senses to be mapped out at the molecular level in this way. When you began this work, I I believe uh, back in the 90s, what was it about the sense of touch that uh, captivated your curiosity? Um, Well, I think just what you said, and that is that it was enigmatic and, and really one of our last 
you know, the five senses, the one least well understood. That's number one. Mm. I've always been fascinated by uh, and worked with many people who've been fascinated by sensory biology, uh, who studied vision, olfaction, things like that. Um, touch was the one that seemed uh, more out of touch, if you want to say. You know, we just didn't have hands. <laughs> and uh, beyond our reach. Yeah, beyond our reach. And the other thing is that, um, you know, touch encompasses our sense of um, our ability to detect noxious stimuli, which we perceive as painful. Mm. So there's also a very important, I mean, that's a fascinating aspect of our sensory repertoire, but it's also very important in terms of, you know, health and therapeutics. Well, it's sort of a profound sense um, just because it's what tells us as uh, animals running around on this world what we should be going towards and what we should be going away from it. It informs uh, pretty much every decision that we need to make. You know, sometimes when I give a seminar uh, or talk to students, I often say that, although I'm biased, I would say that of our senses, um, our ability to detect our sense of touch and in particular our ability to sense pain is probably the most important for our survival and and health and you know part of the reason i say that is because if you there are some rare mutations in in human beings that uh that render them unable to detect uh painful or noxious stimuli and you can imagine you know if you have a child with that disorder you have to be really careful because they don't you know they they don't pain teaches us what to be uh, uh, aware of and how to not only how to withdraw a hand from a hot stove, but it teaches us that we need to learn that you know there's a protective mechanism that we need to avoid that in the future. And if you haven't experienced pain, it's hard to protect yourself. And children who have this disorder may, for example, be playing with a playing with a pencil and putting the pencil through their hand, or playing in the sandbox and they get sand in their eyes and it doesn't hurt them, and so they get corneal abrasions and all those kind of things. So. You know, that's kind of a stark illustration that if you don't have a pain pathway and normally functioning pain system, you're really at great risk for injury and even death. Right. So it, it really is important. Now, the flip side of that, of course, is that pain can become what we call maladaptive, right? We all know that's the more common thing where we have an injury uh, and um, or some kind of a disease, cancer, whatever, and then pain outlives its usefulness as this acute, you know, important warning system. And instead, it becomes persistent and debilitating. And so that's the flip side and, um, and really the part of pain that we also need to understand uh, because it affects so many people. Right. So it was uh, some basic research that you were conducting there, but there's really nothing basic about the big questions that we're trying to unlock and trying to get at uh, by pursuing this science. Uh, we are speaking once again, by the way, to David Julius, a professor of physiology at UC San Francisco who won a Nobel Prize earlier this past week. i uh, going to talk to him now a little bit more about the uh, science that went into that research. So turning the clock back to the 90s and when a lot of this stuff was still really unanswered, just to help uh, us maybe get into the right conceptual frame for all of this over yeah. the past 60 70 years one of the the big projects in biology has been finding the molecular basis for the things going on in our body maybe the most famous example of that would be mapping uh, finding the the shape of the dna the famous double helix structure yeah. watson and crick mm -hmm. and so right. uh, what you were saying a moment ago is that when it comes to the sens sensation of touch finding that molecular shape, that molecular basis, uh, really took a lot longer than many other senses? Yeah, so um, it did take longer. 
And, um, and that was for, you know, a variety of technical reasons in part. Um, but it did take longer to find those molecules. But that's really the goal in all these sensory systems. So for example, you know, if you look at earlier and very classic and beautiful work in the eye or in the nose where, um, uh, you know, the main goal is to identify the molecules, the so-called receptors that we have on whatever relevant nerve endings or, or, or structures in those different sensory organs. Like in, for example, in the eye, it's the retina. In the nose, it's what's called the olfactory epithelium. That's where the stimulus from the world, from our environment first kind of interacts with our body. So of course, in the retina, it's photons of light hitting the retina and telling us whether we're seeing light and whether we're seeing it in you know red, green, or blue color variations. In the nose, it's you know, smelling the volatile odorants that come out of a banana or Chanel number no. five or whatever you have and interacting with those molecules in those structures, in those sensory organs that initiates the whole signal that eventually gets to our brain and tells us, as my former advisor, Richard Axel, who studied, got a Nobel prize for understanding basis of olfaction with Linda Buck, as they would say, um, informs us, allows our brain to interpret what's happening, to, to basically create a, a picture and, uh, and, and a reconstruction of our external world. And so in order to really understand that process, you need to first identify these so-called receptors or molecules, which gives you a toehold into the system to really understand how it's built and how it works. And so when you started out this research, you had some sense that there, there must be some molecules, some receptor in our cells that are signaling to us when we have the sense of touch. Uh, mm -hmm. And you went looking, did, did you start out looking for uh, receptors that had something to do with heat? Uh, what was what was the beginning of your research? How did you try to tackle this problem? Yeah, that's a great question. So we didn't. So the first thing I'd like to say is, you know, one thing that's a little bit different about touch, hmm. and I, I don't know if this is true, but at least for me, as, uh, even as a scientist, is that I think we take that more for, we've take, we took it more for granted, like that when you touch something hot or cold or feel something rough or smooth, that there's actually a very specific molecular process going on hmm. in that way. You know? We've known that's the case for vision and for olfaction. I think touch. you know it's it's funny that you say this because when I was reading about this yeah. research earlier this week, I was like, oh yeah, that that would be something yeah. that we would need to learn about because it just does some seem so natural, even more than other senses. Right. You know, we don't think about what's what what underlies that in terms yeah. of mechanism. But but you're right. We did not at first go to look for a heat sensor. Hmm. The way this started was um, that really came out of our you know at least my infatuation with the idea of using natural products, an interest that I've had for a long time in using natural products to explore the nervous system. Now, this is not a novel That is idea. chemicals found in nature? Yeah. And this is not my novel idea. This has been, you know, this has been a, an approach that's yielded mm. incredible discoveries over many years. And in fact, is the basis for development of many medicines. You know, think about opiates, even aspirin is derived from uh, salicylate, which comes from the willow bark. Mm. Um, but I've always been interested in like, you know, how do, how do human beings um, find plants that they can use for medicinal purposes? You know, it's sort of like chemical anthropology. Hmm. How did I identify those? How do they come to use these things in medicine for culinary ex purposes, even for ritualistic, you know, um, uh, events, shamans, etc. And then, uh, you know, how, how then as scientists can we 
exploit that knowledge to identify the molecules in those natural plant products or other natural products from the sea or whatever that are responsible for those behavioral effects and for the you know, seductive effects that they have that the humans want to keep using them. And then how do we take those molecules and use them to really understand something profound about physiology? Mm. So that's always something that's interested me. And in the case that led us into this work, it really all came down to understanding how hot chili peppers elicit a painful burning sensation. And again, we weren't the first ones to think about chili peppers uh, from work in the 60s and 70s in Hungary. Um, there were groups that uh, that had shown, uh, Jansko Gabor and others, that uh, capsaicin, which is the main pungent agent in chili peppers, chili peppers, is a very potent uh, agent to activate nerve fibers that are involved in pain sensation. And so sensitivity to this compound, this chili pepper compound, capsaicin, became sort of a very important functional earmark of these neurons. So we wanted to understand what the basis for this is at the molecular level. What molecule or molecules mediate this effect with the idea that, you know, if we understood that, we would begin to get some little toehold in understanding pain sensation at a molecular level. So that's what we did. Just want to reintroduce you uh, real quick and remind listeners that this is KCBS In-Depth, uh, your weekly deep dive into the events and trends shaping life in the Bay Area and beyond. I'm Keith Menconi. Today, uh, we are speaking about some basic research and some big questions uh, with David Julius, a professor of physiology at UC San Francisco and a brand new Nobel laureate. Uh, got that award for his research into the molecular basis of touch. And uh, we're talking about the, the discovery itself and some of the further the research that it set off over the past uh, couple of decades, uh, hearing now about how that research came about. And so when you talk about your research with uh, capsicum and uh, that spicy substance and how it's influencing uh, this uh, feeling of pain and touch in, in, in cells, should we, imagine, uh, should we imagine like little little dishes with cells inside of them that you're dumping some capsicum into and, and monitoring? Uh, what, did this, uh, what did this look like? Yeah, so that's exactly what we did. We took <laughs> nerve cells and put them in a dish. Very good uh, explanation. And, um, and we put capsaicin on them. And then we used these specific cellular assays to ask if there was an effect, like if it activated the, the, the cell, the nerve cell in the dish. Uh, and then we parlayed that, that uh, assay, if you, if you will, into, uh, into a process whereby we could identify the gene that was responsible for this action. And in doing that, we identified a gene that encodes this protein called TRPV1, which is a receptor for capsaicin. And once we had that receptor, we had to figure out why do we have that in our bodies and what is its normal physiological role. And so when we talk about a receptor, we're talking about a protein that's in the cell wall that is responding to heat and spiciness to... Correct. Yeah? Yeah. So, you know, the way that I usually describe it uh, is... Um, Imagine the surface of the cell, which is called the, the plasma membrane or the cell membrane. And in it sit these little uh, proteins that really, actually, when you look at them, even in the electron microscope, they look like little donuts. Hmm. So you imagine that they're donuts, but the hole in the middle of the donut is closed until uh, you um, put chili pepper extract on it, capsaicin, or you heat up the cell, and then the donut hole gets bigger. Hmm. And when the donut hole gets big enough, ions like sodium and calcium ions from the external environment flow through this donut hole into the cell. And in the nervous system, 
you know, the method of communication in nerve cells is to generate an electrical current. So the, 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 the movement of those ions across the membrane through this donut does that. And then that propagates this signal to your central nervous system, meaning the spinal cord yeah. and brain. And just to, just to highlight, just as a quick aside, uh, one, one thing that I find very interesting about this is this does explain why spiciness, heat, and I, I believe acid is involved in this as well, are all yeah. experienced as some kind of burning sensation. Because, I mean, if you think about it, spiciness and heat don't really have that much to do with one another uh, in, a, in a physical sense. But here they are showing up at, at a molecular level, really being processed the same way. Yes. So, you know, we can discriminate these things, obviously, because right. pain sensation is also very context dependent. So you know when you're eating spicy food, uh, unless the food's really hot, you're not really burning yourself. And so, you know, there is a difference in how you perceive these things, but at some level, and of course, we use the same words to describe them. Now, the right. flip side of this and something else that, my, that folks in my lab did uh, a couple of years after this was to ask the other question, how do we sense cold? Mm. And you might imagine if you were going to take, find a chemical mimic of cold, what would you look for? Menthol, right? Mm. Yeah, because mint leaves uh, are you know produce these cooling agents like menthol, and so we use menthol in the same way we use capsaicin to find a receptor, another donut, if you will, for menthol, which we found, and it turns out to be a molecular cousin of the capsaicin heat receptor, and in fact the menthol receptor is a cold receptor, so it responds not only to menthol and cool like all these synthetic cooling agents that you put on your face, aftershave and all these things, they activate this little receptor, as does cold. Uh, and that's why we um, confuse those percepts of chemical cool from cooling agents and something that's actually thermally cold. This explains everything. Explain, the, the, the... <laughs> <laughs> Not everything, but something. <laughs> At least a part of it anyway. Uh, and so just to broaden out the picture just a little bit, we did mention a little bit earlier that you were sharing this award with a Scripps researcher, Artem Patapudian. And uh, again, uh, he is looking at more of these receptors that are responding under different circumstances under the context yeah. of pressure. So w bottom line, when it comes to how we're feeling what we're feeling, it's just many different receptors responding in different kinds of context to different right. kinds of yeah. sensations. That's right. And then that's traveling through the cell and telling us uh, what, what's happening on our skin. Exactly. So they're tuned to different types of events, stimuli, if you will, right? There's some that are activated by heat, some by cold. In Artem's case, the ones that he's identified by pressure. And then, you know, our brain has to discriminate all these things. So uh, that's a matter of wiring, of the wiring diagram. You know, so different cells may express different combinations of these of these receptors for hot, for cold, for pressure. And then uh, depending upon how they're segregated to different cells and how those cells wire to the spinal cord and to the brain, are, are, you know, we can psychophysically or consciously separate out these different percepts. But, you know, sometimes we all know, especially when it comes to pain, we can't always discriminate. Is it, was that sharp or was it hot or was it cold? So, there's plasticity, as they say, in that wiring diagram. And uh, a lot of times we can sort things out, but, but not always. And figuring out that wiring diagram 
is really sort of a, a big challenge for the future. All right. So uh, certainly a lot more to be discovered. Uh, we're going to next talk a little bit about the uh, research that has followed from your discoveries. Uh, let's reintroduce you real quick, uh, speaking once again to David Julius, professor of physiology at UC San Francisco, talking about his Nobel Prize and his research into the sensation of touch. This is KCBS In-Depth. I'm Keith Menconi. So it's uh, based on what I'm reading. It seems like there was uh, a lot of excitement after your discovery. Uh, uh, pharmaceutical companies hoping that, you know, if we understand the sensation of heat and pain in uh, this more fundamental way, then uh, perhaps we might be able to come up with some kind of pharmaceutical solution that doesn't involve opioids or opiates or any of these, uh, uh, you know, things that have their own sets of issues. Uh, based on what I was reading, though, also, uh, it seems like the progress that we've made has been a little bit slower than perhaps uh, originally hoped. So this is a, a really complicated question, turning this discovery into a way of addressing pain. It is. And um, I think that it's complicated on many levels. One is the biology. Mm -hmm. Two is drug development, which can be very, you know, long term and fraught with all kinds of issues. Um, you know, I think it also highlights one of the challenges in the two, two challenges in particular in the pain area. One is that, um, you know, we use a single word pain, like we do cancer, but pain's a lot of different types of, uh, you know, there are a lot of different types of chronic pain syndromes. Migraine pain is different than inflammatory bowel syndrome pain, which is different than say osteoarthritic knee pain. And I think we need to understand what makes, you know, what are the, what are the molecules and cell types that are most important to those different types of pain syndromes? Uh, because any given drug probably won't work for all those things. So in clinical trials, you got to match the right drug with the right, you know, pain uh, paradigm. The other thing is, is that, uh, you know, as we started off saying in, in the program, pain is a very important protective function, and you need to have that to stay healthy. So we want drugs that diminish pain when pain is pathologic, but does not eliminate pain when we need it for our acute protective sense. And I think developing for developing drugs, that's often a challenge. So for example, in the case of some of the early drugs that have been uh, tried for this capsaicin receptor, which we call TRIPV1, one of the, what I would call on target side effects is that people's ability after taking the drug, people's ability to determine whether something is hot, like a hot cup of coffee is diminished. So, you know, drug companies worry about the drug having uh, an effect on diminishing the protective function of pain. But um, I, th you know, the recent studies by us and others looking at the atomic structure of these molecules, I think may provide some insights as to ways to modulate their activity without just shutting them down. Uh, so that we can, you know, tap that down when there's persistent pain, but not to diminish protective pain. Yeah. Well, we, uh, we only have a few minutes left. So uh, I suppose uh, just uh, quickly with this question, what does the future of research look like for you? You know, you, you tackled this, this basic piece of science decades ago. What are you working on these days? Um, what have you done you for know, us lately, uh, I guess is what I'm trying to ask. Yeah, exactly. That's always, <laughs> you know, that's always what, a, uh, what a good scientist is asking himself, <laughs> his or herself. What have I done lately? Um, <laughs> you can never really sit back on your laurels because... Uh, Science moves fast mm. and, you know, you answer a question and you open up another 10. So there's always something interesting to look at. So, you know, we're continuing in this area and we're sort of continuing on two levels. One is very microscopic and that is to ask what these receptors look like together with a good friend of mine here at UCSF, Yifan Chang, who's a wonderful biochemist. Uh, the, sh the shape of know, the proteins themselves. 
Yeah. What do they look like if you put them in the electron microscope? Where are all the atoms mm. and where are places that drugs could fit into little pockets to regulate these, these little donuts, as we call them, in a better way? Mm. Uh, and then the other is sort of stepping back and looking you know, more broadly at the nervous system. Can we look at different models of pain? Like we're, for example, now very interested in pain that's associated with the GI tract, like the sort of pain that you would have if you had inflammatory bowel syndrome or IBD. And uh, you know, what nerve fiber types are important in that? What other cell types are important in that? What types of molecules, et cetera? And this, I think, will help us understand one, what, whether there are new targets that we and other people can think about and what types of drugs might work best for that particular type of pain scenario. Hmm. All right. Well, uh, again, only a few minutes left, but uh, since you are now a, a hometown hero for uh, us in the Bay yeah. Area, I'm wondering yeah. if you could talk a little bit about your path into science and what you perhaps would hope others uh, that are considering a career in science uh, would know about what it takes to win a Nobel Prize. Yeah, well, uh, you know, you don't go into science to win a Nobel Prize. That's the first thing. Yeah. You go into science because you're excited about it and you're really curious yeah. and you want to make some discoveries. And, you know, um, I could talk about my own background as well, but, you know, I've had people, I think the important thing is I've had people in my lab, men and women from all over the world and from all aspects of society. You know, some people, I've had a number of people in my lab whose parents never went to college and there was no, you know, academic history. I've had people in my lab who, you know, parents are professors or, or an uncle was a professor. So, you know, that, that doesn't matter. And the important thing is that for younger people who want to do science, the only thing that matters is your own curiosity and your drive and your interest in doing this stuff. You know, you don't have to come from an academic family. You don't have to come from wealth. You can come from very modest means. You know, it's just really up to you. And, um, and to put yourself in position where you can start to learn what you want to do and get exposure maybe to working in a lab or, you know, taking science courses. But it's really about being curious. And, you know, the best thing is there's a time late at night when you've done an experiment and you realize that you finally understood how something works. And you get this sense, it may not be true, but you have the sense that you're the only person on the planet who knows the answer to this question. You know, it could be small, could be big. And that's really a thrilling thing, you know, and then you're going to share it with people, but it's like, aha, I figured it out. And, you know, me and maybe a couple of other people in the world that know this right now. And that's really a cool thing. And then you get to sort of share it with everybody and uh, kind of have that excitement and think about the next step. So if you like that kind of stuff, then science is for you. Yeah. Uh, the, the very first person to look through the telescope and see that particular yeah. Place in the skies, yeah, it must be a remarkable feeling. Um, exactly. When I, I suppose what is also striking uh, about your research is that uh, it, 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 people might get the sense that if, if uh, they went into science, really uh, all the big questions have been answered at this point. But here we are talking to somebody that was <laughs> doing important research into the sense of touch, which is so close to home for so many of us, uh, and uh, still lots of gigantic frontiers. You know, I've heard that sort of throughout my career. You know, from people, you know, students and professors, whatever, like this is solved. And I don't know, you know, the next, you know, that's a very um, myopic view. This there's there's so much more that we don't know about than that we understand. Yeah, uh, I think the thing is, is that sometimes, you know, you have to back up from a problem and really think about think about it from a bigger, larger perspective. Sometimes if you're too close to it, you know, and you're really involved in it, you think that, well, it's getting a little crowded, et cetera, et cetera. And then you either have to back up 
or sometimes say, hey, you know, I've worked in this area for a long time. I've really been fascinated about this other thing. I'm going to start working on that. So I think, um, you know, the secret to this is uh, you got to work on something that gets you out of bed every day. And when you're working on something where you feel like it's getting a little bit too tunnel vision and you're sort of getting bored of it, you know, you should make a little shift and start something new uh, just to sort of put the pizzazz back in it. But there's always something new to discover. And, um, and I think it uh, depends upon how flexible you are and how willing you are to think about new things. Yeah, well, good advice for any of us, uh, regardless of what particular problem we might be working on in our <laughs> own profession. Uh, once again, we have been speaking to David Julius. He is a professor of physiology at UC San Francisco, talking about his research that led to a Nobel Prize just this past week. Dr. David Julius, uh, thanks so much for being on KCBS In-Depth. Thanks very much. I really enjoyed the conversation. And thank you all for listening. For KCBS and In-Depth, I'm Keith Menconi. Stay safe, be well. We'll see you next week. You've been listening to KCBS In-Depth. Get every episode by subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and other podcast platforms. Visit kcbsradio.com for more news and interviews. We are the Bay Area's news station, KCBS. All-star closer, Kenley Jansen, we have a question. What's the best podcast of all time? Baseball isn't boring, baby. I'm Rob Bradford, and every single day I'm sitting down with the biggest names to show you this great game is the greatest game. It's my podcast. It's my passion. It's a cause I started more than two years ago and is now the most prolific national daily baseball pod there is. Another fact. So jump aboard the B.I.B. Express. Follow and listen to Baseball Isn't Boring, presented by Wasabi Hot Cloud Storage on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts.